The scripture for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 13, beginning today with verse 31. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left that place. May God add his blessing to our hearing and understanding of his holy word. Will you bow with me for a moment of prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Do you know what a flip book is? You know, a small booklet with a series of images that are similar but change gradually from one page to the next. And when the pages are viewed in quick succession, the image appears animated by simulating motion. They're sometimes called flick books because of the way you work. You flick the pages and see the images. They move either fast or slow. You see, each individual image is true and correct but it isn't until you see them as a whole that the booklet literally comes to life. So it isn't just a man with a dog on a leash with a bird in the sky, but rather a man walking down the street with his dog and birds flying across the sky. When the single images are flipped together, the story takes on life and meaning. Seven of the parables of Jesus told, that he told are recorded in Matthew chapter 13. And each of, us give, each of them gives meaning and important details about the nature of the kingdom of God. And each time Jesus uses a parable, he is careful to say, the kingdom is like the word pictures that Jesus is so good at painting for the crowd and for his disciples capture part of the essence of kingdom reality that he has come to earth to reveal. We started the series a couple of weeks ago with an examination of the parable of the sower and discovered that God has sown the kingdom broadly and with abandon. 
The seed is the very life of Jesus, who was made available over and over again. And the message of grace and love grows when the soil, our hearts, become fertile and the harvest is abundant. But the seed is available no matter the condition of the soil. Aren't you glad that God plants with abandon and doesn't wait until we're ready? God is an opportunistic farmer indeed. And then there's that weedy little parable about the evil neighbor who comes and plants weeds among the good wheat with the resulting messy garden with which we're all so familiar. How does one extract the weeds without harming the wheat? Patience, Jesus counsels. Don't really know the outcome until the harvest and the grain will be celebrated and the weeds will be destroyed. This kingdom of God is a real-life place where actions have consequences, where intentions matter, where God is still at work rooting out evil in individuals and in our social institutions. And judgment is a reality to be considered each step of the way. Each parable is important, but layered together, they begin to create a bigger picture. And today, we're going to flip through five more parables. Now, in some ways, the 13th chapter of Matthew is a bit odd, packed the way it is with so many wonderful stories. Really can't imagine Jesus actually using all of the parables in just two sermons like the text suggests. Jesus is too good a preacher for that. When you've got some great illustrations, you don't just clump them all together and hope the crowd figures out the point. No, I'm guessing that when Matthew sat down to record what he remembered of Jesus preaching, the parables were the things that were the easiest to remember, so he put them all together one after another since they all deal with the kingdom of God. I'm guessing Jesus has a lot more to say about each story and how it revealed the nature of life together with God and with one another here on planet Earth. This chapter has five more gems for us to explore as we hear our Lord describe, explain, and reveal this new kingdom reality that brings new life to the creation story. So the scripture says, he put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, really mean the same thing, and Jesus used the terms interchangeably is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And the seed is the smallest of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than all the herbs and becomes a tree. So large, in fact, that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. Now, both the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast contrast the smallness of the kingdom with the greatness of its effect. Think about it. What could be less significant than a baby in a manger? Or little Israel, the vassal of mighty Rome? Or a Jew from Nazareth and a handful of not very promising disciples? Or a cross? What could be less significant than a a modest suburban church or a tent revival or a storefront church? What could be less significant than a half dozen barely under control children in a Sunday school classroom in a church basement? 
or a lanky, sweaty boy hearing the call to give his heart to Christ while working under a trailer in Appalachia. What could be less significant than a missionary couple living their lives among international college students and taking them to Cuba for spring break to install water filters on five-gallon buckets? What could be less significant than the average preacher preaching an average sermon to an average congregation or just a loaf of bread or a cup of wine? But these are all parts of the kingdom, and you can never tell what power is hidden in their midst. You see, we expect to find the kingdom in cathedrals and megachurches, in huge professional choirs and big pipe organs, large praise bands of guitars and drums and and strings and keyboards and horns. But these parables suggest that real kingdom power is to be found in the humblest of places, among the least likely people, a bottle of cold water given to a homeless vet on a freeway ramp, a packed summer lunch offered to a child at a school closed for the summer, church church folks visiting shut-ins in their homes, a nun walking the streets of Calcutta. These look like nothing, But Jesus promises that there is veiled power here, great power in the mustard seed and the yeast. Over the past two millennia, we have seen the proof. Today, Roman Empire appears only in history books, movies, and in the crumbling ruins. But people sing praises to Jesus all around the globe. The thousand-year Reich lasted only a decade, but the Church of Jesus Christ keeps marching on. Communism spent the better part of a century trying to kill the church, but then communism collapsed, and Christians are building churches on its ruins. Note that the church and the kingdom are not synonymous, but the church is one of the manifestations of the kingdom. Not that we should expect the kingdom to conquer all, Theologian Emil Bruner reminds us that the kingdom's form is perpetually little, always seed-like, divinely designed to be treasured in earthen, not golden vessels, so that the exceeding greatness of the gospel's power might always be God's and not human's. So, the next time you plant a, a tiny seed or bake bread and add yeast or sourdough starter, remember how the small things you do in the name of Christ can grow and bloom into large, delicious kingdom moments that can heal a hurt, calm a fear, or feed a hungry soul. The parables of the mustard seed and the yeast encourage us to, to exercise our faith and our patience. God is less likely to sweep through the world like a conquering hero on some handsome steed and more likely to be found in the still, small voice. In most cases, we will see only small evidence of progress. A couple choosing to be married in the church rather than at the courthouse. A child being brought forward for baptism. A youth group on a Zoom call. Small things. But in God's hands, these small beginnings have the potential to grow so large as to literally shift the world on its axis. Next, we flip through 
to two parables about the joy to be found in the kingdom of God. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid in his joy. He goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who is a merchant seeking fine pearls, who having found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl are both parables of discovery, of joy, and of action. The merchant actively seeking pearls, while the other man just stumbles onto a treasure in the field. But both recognize the overwhelming value of their discoveries. And they sell everything so that they might go and buy it. Now, in either case, is there any hint of sacrifice, of giving up something precious, of, of having to make a difficult choice? Neither appears to be sad to sell everything because they're literally overwhelmed with the joy of the discovery and the prospect of possessing the treasure. They are like the disciples who literally left everything to go and follow Jesus. They are like St. Paul who regarded all else as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. There are two lessons to be learned here. One is the demand the gospel places on us. Grace is not free, but requires a response. We cannot vacillate. You can't serve two masters. You see, neither man would have gained the treasure had they refused to pay the price. Second is that joy, not duty, drives these men to action. They don't sell everything to buy the treasure because they ought to do so, but rather because their hearts demand it. In presenting the gospel, we must remember to emphasize the joy, to proclaim good news instead of bad news. Condemnation convinces very few people. Calls to duty often fall on deaf ears. Calls to joy, on the other hand, make us want to respond. Last week I was listening to NPR's Ari Shapiro as he interviewed Anna Scott, who covers homelessness for station KCRW and is the host of the station's podcast, Samaritans, about the journey of the podcast's subject, Christine Curtis, through the Los Angeles County Homeless Services System. I went online to get a transcript of the interview. It touched my heart deeply. I want to share part of it with you today. Shapiro, the host, sets the scene. There are more than 66,000 homeless people in Los Angeles County. Today, we're going to hear from one of them. Then we hear the voice of Christine Curtis. I was a little surprised you picked me of all the people that are homeless. That really surprised me. Although I think, well, you're looking for somebody stable, right? That, that, that wasn't loco in the head. Shapiro continues to set the scene. That's Christine Curtis. She was homeless for seven years before she started getting social services. A few years ago, LA County raised its sales tax so it could pour hundreds of millions of dollars into street outreach for homeless people. Even with those extra funds, homelessness is still growing in LA. Anna Scott, member of member station KCRW, followed the story of Christine Curtis for a year 
and created the new podcast, Samaritans. Then we hear reporter Anna Scott. When I first met Christine, I thought she would be a relatively easy person to help. She, she was always in the same place. She was easy to find. She wasn't dealing with any serious mental health or addiction issues. She was open to health. She was open to talking about herself. And I found that it was actually not that easy to help her after all. Her story's complicated and her needs are complicated. But Christine finally gets the services that she hasn't had for years. She finally gets to go see a doctor and the doctor gives her some prescriptions. But the one prescription runs out and she doesn't get a refill. She doesn't take the other one of the prescriptions because it's going to make her have to go to the bathroom on a regular basis and she doesn't have regular access to a bathroom. There's just this disconnect over and over. Shapiro again guides the conversation. But you say that it feels like Christine knows everybody in the neighborhood and you zero in on one really close friend of hers, a retiree who lives nearby, who's named Kim. And then we hear Kim describe the similarities between herself and Christine. Kim, we had more things in common than we didn't. She went to Hollywood High, I went to Fairfax. We both grew up going to All-American Burger on Sunset. I'm 61, she's 60. It was all in the same time period. Christine tells the reporter Scott that if it weren't for Kim and other people like her, there were times that she would starve. Shapiro draws this conclusion. It's really kind of heartwarming to hear about the generosity and kindness, but also a little scary that it takes strangers providing food to keep Christine from going hungry. Scott replies, yeah, it's both. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary that Christine had this whole network of friends in the neighborhood, and especially Kim and their friendship. It really is the heart of this story. And I hope that's inspiring for people to hear that, that individuals just can make a difference with people in their neighborhood. But it is scary that that was how Christine survived for so long. But without that help, which a lot of people don't have, she could be dead. Remember what Jesus said? The kingdom of heaven is like a tiny mustard seed planted or a pinch of love and shoved into a huge bowl of flour. Tiny acts of kindness that grow into life-saving, joy-filled relationships. The kingdom of God is growing all around us. And then Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. The net caught fish of every kind and when it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, put the good into baskets, and threw out the bad. As the parable of the weeds, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven as diverse and inclusive. Again, the angels come to separate the evil from the righteous. The net contained various kinds of fish. Just as the fish exist together in the sea, we also must live together, exist peacefully in the kingdom, and leave the judgment to God. Matthew 13 is a rich collection of parables about the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us the kingdom is like an opportunistic farmer slinging seeds everywhere. It's like a good crop ruined by an evil neighbor who plants weeds among the wheat, resulting in a harvest of both good and evil. The good is celebrated, the evil gets bundled and burned. 
The kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed that grows into a bush as big as a tree and the wonder of a huge amount of flour blooming into sweet leavened loaves, light and fluffy and intoxicatingly delicious, or a pearl of great price, or a treasure in a field, both requiring selling everything with abandon to acquire the treasure and the joy that results will be overwhelming. And the kingdom is so all-inclusive, like a net that captures all manner of fish and creatures. And the message about the kingdom is truly a matter of life and death. Remember, there is a separating of the good from the bad. And the evil are doomed to fire and the gnashing of teeth. And then there's one additional aspect of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus highlights in this chapter. And that is the role of the scribe. He concludes, Therefore, every scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So what does that mean? Well, now we understand that scribes are often portrayed in a negative light in Matthew's gospel, right alongside the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yet the role of the scribe was extremely important. They had authority over the law. They were trained, in this case, specifically for the kingdom of God. These scribes are leaders who are responsible for mining the wisdom of the law, both the old and the new, and teaching it to the people. In a modern context, the scribe would be those who have been trained in the scripture and the gospel message. Preachers are called to use from the treasure of his or her knowledge the ancient context of the gospel, the old, and the contemporary application of it today, the new, and share that with God's people. In other words, those who are responsible for the law must make it relevant for God's people today. That's a reminder to me as the preacher to be well-prepared, to be passionate and humble as I can be. Today, I have tried my very best to describe some of the ways Jesus described and invited his hearers to participate in this wondrous kingdom. Now, earlier in Matthew, when Jesus was preaching to a large crowd on the mountain, Sermon on the Mount, the disciples at the end came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And the prayer that he prayed and taught his disciples was really a prayer asking God to send down the kingdom of God with power and with glory. Frederick Beekner sets the Lord's Prayer into the context of the kingdom in this quote from his book, Whistling in the Dark, and I quote, in the Episcopal order of worship, the priest sometimes introduces the Lord's Prayer with the words, Now, as our Savior Christ hath taught us, we are bold to say. The word bold is worth thinking about. We do well not to pray the prayer lightly. It takes guts to pray it at all. We can pray it in the unthinking and perfunctory way we usually do, only by disregarding what we're actually saying. Thy will be done is what we're praying. That is the climax of the first half of the prayer. We're asking God to be God. We are asking God to do not what we want, but what God wants. 
we're asking God to make manifest the holiness that is now mostly hidden to set free in all its terrible splendor the devastating power that is now mostly under restraint. Thy kingdom come on earth is what we're saying. And if that were suddenly to happen, what then? What would stand? What would fall? Who would be welcomed in? Who would be thrown the hell out? Which, if any of our most precious visions of God, of what God is and, and what human beings are, would prove to be more or less on the mark, and which would turn out to be as phony as a $3 bill. Boldness indeed. To speak those words is to invite the tiger out of the cage, to unleash a power that makes atomic power feel like a warm breeze. You need to be bold in another way to, seek, to speak the second half of the prayer. Give us, forgive us, don't test us, deliver us. If it takes gusts to face the omnipotence that is God's, it takes perhaps no less to face the impotence that is ours. Because we can do nothing without God. We can have nothing without God. Without God, we are nothing. It is only the words, our Father, that make the prayer bearable. If God is indeed something like a father, then as something like children, maybe we can risk approaching him anyway. So that's where we are today at the end of Matthew chapter 13, filled with parables about the kingdom of God. There's nothing else really to do but pray like Beekner suggests with confidence, innocence, and simple joy of children that Jesus taught his disciples that prayer and pray to our Father. And so, take a deep breath, and if you are willing, dare to join me as we pray boldly to our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Receive now the benediction. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. God bless you.